Before we begin, a quick warning. Just in case you're listening with kids around, this episode contains adult themes including mental health, illness, and death. One doesn't realize how important a legacy is or to leave behind a legacy till much later in life. Adversity defines us as people. When the chips are down, when it's time to really dig deep, what motivates you? How do you make rational sense of what seems illogical and completely out of your control? And how do you pick yourself back up, dust off and continue, or even sometimes start over? You're listening to The Journey, a new podcast by Volkswagen committed to unraveling the truth behind the road to greatness. We're all about the journey that got you there. This is a raw behind the scenes look into the lives of incredible people who found success often against all odds. I'm Yasmin. We've been talking to those who share a joy for moving people, culture, or themselves. People like our guest today, Aparna Verma. I was at my grandfather's house and I was getting ready for my first day at college. I was joining architectural school. And it was around six o'clock in the morning and I was going there, getting ready to brush my teeth. And when I finished brushing my teeth and I came out, my grandfather said, Aparna, I need to talk to you. He says, your parents have had a car accident. And the first thing that came to my mind was my mother, because she's not the best driver in the world. And I was like, what did mom do? And he says, um, it's not your mother. I said, my dad's such a good driver, it can't be my dad. And then he just was quiet. And he's not the kind of man who shies away from anything. He's the kind of man who just says it straight out. He just said, it's both your parents. And I'm like, both my parents what? And he goes, both your parents died in a car accident last night. He said it so quickly. I wasn't even sure if I heard him correctly. It took me maybe a few minutes to process. And then I think I just went crazy. I think I just started screaming. We were having breakfast and I started throwing the plates on the ground. I was like, you know, you're lying to me. And that's, that's pretty much how I reacted. And then I went into the room, I shut the door and I didn't know what to do except just cry and want to be alone. I didn't really want anyone around me. And then the first thing that came into my mind was, what about my brothers? Aparna's younger brothers, Ashwin and Kumar, were 14 and 11 at the time. In those days, we didn't have as many flights as we do today. She eventually found a red-eye flight that brought her back home and to her brothers. My aunts and uncles were waiting for me at the airport. And I just said, take me home. Just take me home. My brothers were, were there, waiting. 
tengo kids. You know, you sort of just hold on to each other and that's what we did. We just held on to each other and they had no idea what was going on. They had no clue what was going on. They just knew that mom and dad hadn't come home the night before. That's all they knew. And then they see me arriving because I'm supposed to be in college. And they're like, okay, something's going on. And it, and it, was, it was interesting how my parents' room became our sanctuary. You know, everyone, you know, all the relatives come and they were all sleeping everywhere. And I said, no one come into my parents' room. That's our room. So the three of us moved in there. And that became our room. And um, I, had, I had to tell them. I don't even remember what I said. I don't even remember how I did it. I mean, <laughs> it was so little... Not that I was grown up, but I just felt so old at that time. I just said, oh, my God, they're so little. And what do I need to do to look after them? You know, that's when everything started happening, you know. Everyone wanted to know everything that was going on. You know, everyone was getting into all the cupboards in the house and opening up the safes and trying to find out what's going on. And, and all, I, all I kept on saying was, can you just leave us alone? Can you just leave us alone? Because we needed something different at the time. We needed, we needed love. We needed attention. We needed care. We needed someone to talk to. In the aftermath of tragedy, when you're the one thrust with the responsibility, you don't really have a moment to sit and live. It was hard in the sense that there were so many things that were going on that I still had to get a hold, a hold of. One of those things was the fact that everything was frozen. The bank accounts were frozen. Um, I had to pay salaries for my mother's you know, school teachers and my dad's construction workers. I had to keep the boys in school. And thinking about myself was completely out of the question. It was like, you know, I quit college. And what did I have to do to just move on and move forward? And that's when you realize how important relationships are and what my parents created so all these bankers were friends of my dad. They were all my so-called uncles. So I started reaching out to all of them saying, I have no money. And they were like, well, there's money sitting in the account. It is frozen, but we can give you money against it. And so, you know, they would give me money to pay off salaries and then money for school fees, money to run the house. And I remember my housemaid, Indu, who's with me right now, she was with me then, and I told her, I said, I can't afford your salary. And she said, that's okay. 
I will work outside, I'll do whatever, but I'll always come home and I'll look after you. But she never left the house. She was still at home full time. But, you know, we were thinking of all these options as to how to just get through. Parents have such big aspirations for you. You know, they want you to get into the top universities. They want you to go to America. They want you to be the best at what you are. They want you to be in the best schools. And all of a sudden, when you have nothing and you're like, okay, how am I going to make all those dreams come true? And I had to make those dreams come true for my brothers. You know, when the family's around you and you're young, you know, they're like, it's easier to get her married. It's easier to, you know, put the burden onto somebody else. Um, close the school down, close the company down. Let's just move on. And it's interesting how this, this spirit inside you wants to hold on to the memory of your parents. And I think for me that was so strong, where I was like, no one is touching anything of anything. This is my mom and dad's, and no one is touching it except me. So everyone just back off, just back off. So what was your turning point? I was being put through the grind in many ways from many different people. I think what triggered it was when they wanted to take my brothers away. And I remember I came home and I was like, I want to give up everything. I don't want anything. Just take it all away. And I was talking to my mom and dad. I said, just take, let them take it all away. I don't care. But let them leave my brothers with me. I, I don't want anything. I remember I went to bed and I had a dream. And in that dream, my mom and dad came to me, and I could still visualize the dream so clearly. And they came to me and they said, Aparna, you are all they have. You need to fight for everything that we have built for you three. You can't just give that up. And if you give it up, what are you going to do? How are you going to support the boys? How are you going to live if you don't fight for it? And this is all in my dream. And I remember waking up, and it was literally, I was reborn a new person overnight. I was a new person, and I was like, that's it. Like, that is it. No one is taking anything from me. No one is taking, no one is taking my brothers from me. I'm going to fight for this, for them. And I'm grateful that I had them because I'm not sure how I would have reacted if they weren't around because I had something to fight for. In a situation like that, you don't fight for yourself. You fight for people you love. I remember the next day as I walked into court and even the judge noticed something different. He was like, her and you know the lawyers were going on and all that kind of stuff and the judge was like I think we need to listen to her and I was 18 years old at the time and I said this is what I want I'm 18 years old now in Dubai that's a legal age 
That means I can make decisions and I don't want other people to make decisions for me. And my decision is to have my brothers. My decision is to keep my family close to me. My decision is no one can touch anything of my parents. These are my decisions. And the judge sort of looked at me and like he was like, <laughs> maybe we should listen to her. As the years passed, Aparna found herself thinking of her parents' legacy and how she wanted to build on that. This is when she decided to build a school so that she could impact more children just like her mother, to help them create opportunities so that every child would be able to fulfill their dream. But Aparna knew little about building a school, let alone running a profitable enterprise. You know, so you have your, you have your business plan and, and you go to the banks and the banks look at the business plan and they, and they go, okay, that's okay, it looks good. So how old are you? And then you tell them how old you are. And they're like, so do you have any backing? No. Do you have any support? No. And then they turn around and they say, well, sorry, we can't give you the money to build a school. And so I called up my brothers and I said, you might not like what I'm going to say, but, you know, you have to hear me. You have to hear me out. I've decided that I'm going to have a proper school building because I want to have a proper campus and I want to do the right thing by the kids. And it's going to cost us everything we have in the bank. So my brothers turned around and they were like, okay, so what does that mean? And I was like, well, it means that if things don't work out, you will have to support yourselves. I can't help you anymore. You've got to find a job. You've got to work part-time. You have to do whatever it takes to survive. And there was silence on the other side. There was just silence. And now we're talking about someone who's 18 and 16. Once you're starting college, once you're finishing school, and they're like, uh... And I was like, but that's not going to happen because no matter what, I'm going to make sure this works. So you guys don't have to have anything to fear. And it's interesting that t- today when my brothers talk to me and they say, then we were young, we didn't know any better, and we just listened to you. Whatever you said, we just said, okay. Because even if they had said no, I would have still gone and done it. And they said, today we would have been more rational. We would have looked at the numbers. We would have looked whether it's working. And then we would have probably said no. And so we're really glad we didn't say no. And it was then and not now. Because in so many ways, I just went with my gut. No matter what anyone told me, how crazy I was. And um, I was like, yeah, but I'm the one who's going to make a difference. So if the banks aren't going to give me the money, that's fine. I'll just do whatever I have to do. I mean, even, you know, the the consultant was like, Aparna, what about my fees? And I'm like, don't worry, it'll come, it'll come. Just give me some time. I'll pay you in installments. Like, everything was an installment basis because I didn't have the money. I did everything on installments. Speaking of installments, do you feel like time has come to you in installments? What does time mean to you now? 
the one thing my mother always said to me was, there is no tomorrow. She lived by that and she died by that. She said, there is no tomorrow. Whatever you want to do, you need to do it today. Because there is no tomorrow, it never comes. So if today is come, it's come and gone. And you've lost a day, you've lost an hour, you've lost a minute. And because I was just rolling and going and moving, I wasn't looking around and smelling the roses. I wasn't seeing the blue skies. I wasn't smelling fresh cut grass. I was just rolling, I was just moving, I was just on a mission. And I was just moving, moving, moving. And that's where I feel that I should have just stopped, paused, and done all that. It's a little hard, to be honest. It's actually a little hard because I'm so used to a certain pattern. What I've created, self-creation. I've created it for myself. Um, but now if it's a rainy day outside, and you know how I love the rain, if it's a rainy day outside, I will stop, I will pause. My coffee takes not five minutes, it takes maybe an hour because I just want to be in that moment of just enjoying the rain, enjoying the weather, and just enjoying the moment. And I'm really, I'm working on it. It's not easy, but I'm working on it. Because I actually want to live life, and, and it's not too late. It's not too late to do that. You talk about how important your parents' legacy is for you. Do you feel like you've helped establish that legacy now? One of the reasons I think a legacy is so important is because you can't really leave anything behind for your children. You can't, I mean, okay, you can leave money, you can leave a business. But when I mean legacy, what I mean by legacy is, in a way, your reputation, the relationships that you've built up. To me, that is a much bigger leg legacy than a brick-and-mortar school. The legacy is the impact that these kids are having on the world. And that then becomes a part of your legacy because you go, those are my kids. My kids have achieved that. My kids have made something of themselves. And to me, that is such a powerful legacy to leave behind. And even though initially, when I was young, I wanted to be an architect, I told my mom, you know, you do the school thing, my dad, you're the engineer, I'll be the architect, I will design and you will build. So we had this agreement, even then, we had, we had this agreement. And to today, I see my life is so different, although I have brought in a lot of architectural elements into what I do, because I still love design. I am so grateful that I'm in this, which I might not have ever been in. And the schools mean the world to me and what, what the kids are doing. It's, it's like it's changed my perspective of life. It's changed my perspective of everything because people around me tell me, you are so lucky because you're, you're impacting lives every single day. And that's something that you sort of take for granted. And then when you hear other people saying that to you, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the legacy. This is 
the impact of thousands of kids that are going out into the world and making a difference, creating an impact. That's the legacy you want to leave behind. As Aparna finally came to terms with what had happened and built this amazing legacy for her parents and now for herself as well, she was forced to confront death yet again. On the cusp of Aparna's 36th birthday, she felt a lump in her breast. I procrastinated a lot on having it checked. One, because I didn't believe it would be anything, and two, is because I didn't want it to be anything and I didn't want to know. Eventually, I did go to the doctor's, and he did a biopsy, and it's a Friday. And I hate that thing about a Friday where you have to wait till Monday. So on Monday morning, I get a phone call from the doctor, and he said, Aparna, I would like to meet you in the office at the clinic. I didn't have to ask him any questions. I didn't need to know. I just knew. The tone of voice was enough. And I said, okay. I literally put the phone down. And I pretty much ran out of ran out of the house. And I went straight to the clinic. And he sat me down. And he started talking to me. And I couldn't hear a word. Nothing. He just he was talking and all I could see were lips moving. That's all I could see. I couldn't hear anything. I, I didn't want to listen to anything. And when someone talks about the big C word, you would never think it would happen to you, ever. And then both my brothers had followed me, actually. And one was sitting on either side of me. Both of them were sitting on either side of me. And they heard everything. I didn't. One was trying to be calm. My other brother was, I would say, more in my state. My youngest brother. I think he was more in my state. The middle, my middle brother was listening to everything. And we were there for about an hour. I still hadn't heard anything. And I remember at the end of the meeting, the session, I walked out and I was sitting on the stoop and I was crying. I was just crying. I, 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 I couldn't even hear my brother. I was just crying. And my brother was talking to me and I couldn't hear anything. And then he said, you know, you have a better chance of survival than I do. And I think that just made me stop and look at him. I looked at him and I go, what do you mean? And he goes, Every day, I have a 50-50% chance of surviving. I can walk the street. I can get run over. He says, I, everyone has a 50-50% chance of survival every day. And he said, the doctor said, you've got 70%. He says, you're doing better than I am. And I looked at him, and it was interesting in that, again, that split second my whole attitude to this just changed from thinking I was dying. And it's, it's interesting how one statement was all it took for me to just shift my thinking to 
tackling what was in front of me rather than running away from it. And I know I was running away from it because I didn't want to go. I'd found a lump three months earlier. And now facing it in front was, I think, even worse than not wanting to know because now it became a reality. Now it was a truth. And so Aparna agreed to get started with her treatment. But this was just the first step. She still had to wait for the pathology results, and then there would be chemotherapy. When I came out and they sent the test to pathology, they came out and they said, it's not clean. So he said, Aparna, we need to go back in again. So I was scheduled again the following week to go back in for an operation. And he said, if it doesn't come out clean, he says, I'm not going to send you out. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to keep you on the table. I'm going to send the results up to pathology. If it doesn't come out clean, we're going to take your breast off. And I was like, okay. Uh, Can we also have the blessed plastic surgeon on board? so that you put on a nice new breast for me. And he just looked at me, and, he, and, I, and I said, if I don't think like this, I am probably going to die. I need to think differently. So everything I put out there was trying to be positive. I might not have felt it, but I was behaving it, I was acting it, and I was trying to feel it, which was hard. And fortunately, I didn't have to have that done. I didn't have to have a mastectomy done. Um, But they cleaned out quite a bit, so I got a nice big hole in there, but that's okay. I can live with that. Then you start the chemo process. And no matter what anybody says, it's horrible. It really is horrible. First, I thought about extending it. And when you extend it, interestingly enough, you don't lose your hair. So if you drag the chemo with less dosage of the chemotherapy, you can extend it on for like eight months, 12 months, and you don't lose your hair. And my doctor advised me, he said, Aparna, he says, whether you do it less dosage or higher dosage, he says, you really want to get this thing over and done with. You don't want to drag it out. Hell with the hair. Just don't worry about the hair. And I was like, okay. And so I, I, so I went to NYU, to the, to the chemo center at NYU. And they wanted to, um, you know, they sort of put, a, put the chemo through your vein. And you need very strong veins so that it doesn't damage the rest of your body. Because if the chemo gets out, it just burns you. It's like acid in a way. So it just burns you. Because what happens with chemo is you kill the good cells and the bad cells. So they were doing that and they couldn't find a vein. And they said, Aparna, you need to go back and you need to get a port. A port is one inch in radius and one inch thick. It acts as a safeguard so that the chemotherapy tubes can be attached to it instead. And the doctor had to find the most suitable location for the ports on her body because it needs to be at the shortest distance from the vein. I literally thought he was crazy, and I said, in a way, I feel you've taken away something from me, something that I thought were beautiful, and you've taken part of that away from me. 
and I'm not feeling very good about myself right now, and now you're going to put a port right here, and I'm going to feel even uglier than I already feel. And I said, you need to find a solution. And he looks at me, and he thinks, now I'm crazy. So first I thought he was crazy, and now he thinks I'm crazy. And he's like, what do you want me to do? And I said, I need you to hide it. And now he really thinks I've lost it. And he goes, Aparna, we, you can't hide a port. This is where it's supposed to be. And I said, I know, but not for me. You might do this for your other patients, but not for me. You need to hide this port. You know, so you feel all over your body. You're looking for bones and stuff. And then I said, he said, you know, I said, no, no, no. This is all going to be seen. You know, no, I want, I want you to hide it. Hide, hide. And then he sort of, and then we sort of got down to under my armpit. And he decided to put the port there. And now instead of a five centimeter tube, it's a 25 centimeter tube. And he said, Aparna, we need to get this x-ray just so I know that I've done the right thing because I've never done this before. And, you know, in my groggy anesthesia state, you know, I got it checked up and it was fine. And I think even he felt it. He, he actually told me, he says, I need more patients like you to come in and tell me this because he said every time a patient comes in, I feel like I'm in a way dying with them because I take everything personally. And he says, you've come in and you've sort of doing the exact opposite. And I wanted to tell him that this is how I live my life. This is how I've learned to live my life, to just tackle things head on and to just go with it. And this is exactly what I wanted, what I had to do here. And so yet again, Aparna began a solitary journey of survival. But this time, although she wanted to trek it out alone, her friends stepped up. I had some of my close friends, my best friends, who were so supportive of me um, in the sense that when I started my, just before I started my chemo, I'd long curly hair till here. And they said, Aparna, it might not be a good idea for you to have long hair when your hair starts falling out. And I was like, mm, maybe you're right. So one of my friends flew in from Spain. Another one who actually took me to the doctors initially came down from Washington, D.C. And all three of us went to get our hair cut. Well, I thought I was going to just get my hair cut. And it was so sweet because they both got their hair cut. So we all had shortcuts when we walked out. So we all walked in with long hair, and we all walked out with short hair. And I think that was a support that I needed. I needed that love. I needed that camaraderie. I, I didn't need um, pity. I did not want pity. And that was, I think, the big word at that time was pity. Poor Aparna. How can we help Aparna? Oh my gosh, what is she going to do? I was like, I don't want to hear any of that. And so I'm glad I got my hair cut because they say that on the 13th day, you start losing your hair. And on the 12th night, my hair was intact. It was awesome. It was beautiful. And I said, maybe I shouldn't have cut my hair. 
You know, I've lost, I cut my hair and I got the short hair and my hair's not even falling out. Like I was actually upset about it. And the next morning when I woke up, Phil, my pillow was full of hair. I don't know what happened during the night, but that's when it started. And you could literally pull out chunks. Like I was literally doing that and I'd pull out a chunk of hair. And so I was, that was another new trauma that I had to go through where I didn't even know how to deal with my hair. And I was like, I was scared to lie down on the bed because it would just fill up with hair. I was scared to take a shower because I would clog up the drain with my hair. And I did that for two, three days. And then I said, you know, I can't do this anymore. So I found out from the doctors, I said, where can I go? And I can get my hair, my head just shaved off. I just want to shave off my hair. And I went and I, I still remember I was in front of the mirror and I, I closed my eyes and the guy just bzzzed my hair. And I still had my eyes closed because I just didn't want to see it. And I opened my eyes and I had a bald head. And one way I was looking at myself and going, oh my God, oh my God. And on the other hand, I was relieved. I, I felt I could breathe. I felt I could, this is it, this is what I have. And I just need to go through the motion with it. And I need to accept it. And I think I was relieved because I just wanted to accept it. I, I didn't want to be halfway in, out, not knowing what was going on. I just wanted to know what my journey was about. And trying to hide away from it, trying to put my head in the sand, not wanting to know was actually far worse for me. I just wanted to know. And so I started my journey with a bald head. Everyone thought I was this new rebel chick on the street because I was just walking around with a bald head. And I actually felt that way. And I started talking to myself a lot and saying, Parna, what is it that you're really scared of? You've been through enough in life. What is it that you're really scared of? Are you scared of death? No. You scared of not being beautiful? No. And what I was scared of was dying, but not scared of death. I was scared of dying, where I wouldn't be there for my brothers anymore. And I hadn't really lived my life. And all I was asking for was just give me a few years so that I can just live, be crazy, just live, and I think that's why I was walking around New York City with this attitude. I was just living. I was living every moment. I was living every second because I was just trying to absorb everything around me. I just wanted to live because that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared of not being able to live, not exist, live. And when I was able to answer that question for myself, I sort of came out of my dark place because I was like, now I have to come into the light to be able to live, whether it's for one day 
one week, one month, one year, 10 years, it doesn't matter. But I have to be able to live, to really live. And I remember when I walked out of the room, my friend in a way didn't recognize me again because I was all dressed up. I said, let's go out. And she sort of looked at me. She says, you, I was like, don't ask me any questions. Let's just go out. I just want to walk. I want to smell the air. I want to see the sunshine. I just want to go. Let's just go. Let's get out of the house. Let's just go. She's like, okay, let's go. If someone is going through the same thing as you, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, I would say that if anyone thinks that they might have it, not to put their head in the sand, not to wait, get it checked immediately. Because one day, one week, one month could change your entire story. It could literally be the difference between life and death. So I would strongly recommend anyone who has even got an inkling that there's something wrong to get it checked immediately. The other advice I would give is deal with it on your terms. Do what is right for you as to how you want to handle it. Don't let people tell you that, you know, you need to get support or you need to meet this person or you need to do that. You do what you think is good for you. Because if, if people are telling you what to do, you're not really going to embrace it. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to be part of it. You have to feel within you that this is right for you. So even if someone gives you advice and you feel it's good for you, go for it. But if you're not resonating with it, don't. Say to yourself, this is how I'm going to deal with it. This is my journey. This is who I want to include in my journey. This is who I don't want in my journey. And I'm going to make the call. I would also say, have complete faith that you're going to be okay. Don't for a second question that you're not going to be okay. Like even when I went through my dark time, even when I was crying in the shower, I would still come out saying, I'm going to be okay. I am going to live through this. Nothing's going to happen. Because I had faith that that's how it was going to be. So I would actually say never, ever, ever lose faith. And you will get through it. I think having gone through an experience like this, it's really about embracing every single moment. And so when I see people just going through life, going through the motion, waking up in the morning, coming back home from work, how many of us are actually present? We're either on our phones, we're, we're just going through the motion, but we're not actually living it. And not knowing whether you're going to live or die, and when you have that big question mark in front of you, you realize that, hey, wait a minute, I actually do want to live. But I also want to live on my terms, and I want to live the way I want to live. So how do you do that in your everyday life? I can't do it in big things, but every day I do something little. Every day I try to do something that I'm like, is this how I want to live? Yes, even if it's just waking up in the morning with a smile. 
wake up, I'm smiling, I'm meditating, and I'm like, yes, this is how I want to start my day. Not start my day in, in a bad mood or stressed about something. I'm like, what's the point? I want to change every day, every minute, before I can even look at the bigger things in life. Mm-hmm. It's every day that matters. It's not the big things. It's all the small things that matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, when was the last time we walked on the beach? It's there. But when was the last time we actually did it and enjoyed it and felt it? That's what I want to do. That's, what I, that's how I want to live mm-hmm. in the moment. I just want to be present. I don't want to live in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live in the past. Mm-hmm. I just want to live in the present, and not even in today. I want to live now, just now. We're sitting here just now. This is how I want to live. Aparna Verma is the founder of Scholars International Group. Her efforts today deliver an educational platform to more than 3,500 children each year. Along with running the Dubai Scholars Private School, Founded in 1976, Scholars International Academy, which opened in 2007, and the Clarion School since 2016. The Journey is a podcast brought to you by Volkswagen. I'm Yasmin. We are produced by Chirag Desai, Peter Mazlumian, and Ria Samuel, with support from Robert Babekal and Akta Saran. Original music by Reiner Erlings. Subscribe for free in your favorite podcast players like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Anrami. You can also find our videos at youtube.com slash Volkswagen Middle East and connect with us on Instagram at Volkswagen ME.